Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Alrighty. Welcome back to Social Distancing Radio. Why did I say it like that? Regardless of whatever weird stuff is in my brain today, let's jump back into Dracula. Starting with a little reading line. Mm. Oh, this is particularly good. As we turn towards colder weather, my husband has been making us spiked apple cider to have with dinner every night. So I'm just pre-gaming that. Let's call it that anyway. So, next up. Oh, this is rough. Rough going. But still, this is probably one of my favorite sections of the novel. Not for the events, but... I feel like this really sort of gets at the like core of the Dracula experience. Anyway, Dr. Seward's Diary, 20 September. Only resolution and habit can let me make an entry tonight. I'm too miserable, too low-spirited, too sick of the world and all in it, including life itself, that I would not care if I heard this moment the flapping of the wings of the angel of death. And he has been flapping those grim wings to some purpose of late. Lucy's mother and Arthur's father, and now... Let me get on with my work. I duly relieved Van Helsing and his watch over Lucy. We wanted Arthur to go to rest also, but he refused at first. It was only when I told him that we should want him to help us during the day and that we must not all break down for want of rest, lest Lucy should suffer, that he agreed to go. Van Helsing was very kind to him. Come, my child, he said, come with me. You are sick and weak, and have had much sorrow and much mental pain, as well as that tax on your strength that we know of. You must not be alone, for to be alone is to be full of fears and alarms. Come to the drawing-room, where there is a big fire, and there are two sofas— You shall lie on one and I on the other, and our sympathy will be comfort to each other, even though we do not speak, and even if we sleep. Arthur went off with him, casting back a longing look on Lucy's face, which lay in her pillow almost whiter than the lawn. She lay quite still, and I looked round the room to see that all was as it should be. I could see that the professor had carried out in this room, as in the other, his purpose of using the garlic. The whole of the window sashes reeked with it, and round Lucy's neck, over the silk handkerchief which Van Helsing made her keep on, was a rough chaplet of the same odorous flowers. 
Lucy was breathing somewhat stertorously, and her face was at its worst, for the open mouth showed the pale gums. Her teeth, in the dim, uncertain light, seemed longer and sharper than they had been in the morning. In particular, by some trick of the light, the canine teeth looked longer and sharper than the rest. I sat down by her, and presently she moved uneasily. At the same moment there came a sort of dull flapping or buffeting at the window. I went over to it softly, and peeped out by the corner of the blind. There was a full moonlight, and I could see that the noise was made by a great bat, which wheeled round, doubtless attracted by the light, although so dim, and every now and again struck the window with its wings. When I came back to my seat, I found that Lucy had moved slightly and had torn away the garlic flowers from her throat. I replaced them as well as I could and sat watching her. Presently she woke and I gave her food, as Van Helsing had prescribed. She took but a little, and that languidly. There did not seem to be with her now the unconscious struggle for life and strength that had hitherto so marked her illness. It struck me as curious that the moment she became conscious she pressed the garlic flowers close to her. It was certainly odd that whenever she got into that lethargic state with the stertorous breathing, she put the flowers from her, but that when she waked she clutched them close. There was no possibility of making any mistake about this, for in the long hours that followed, she had many spells of sleeping and waking, and repeated both actions many times. At six o'clock, Van Helsing came to relieve me. Arthur had then fallen into a doze, and he mercifully let him sleep on. When he saw Lucy's face, I could hear the sissing indraw of his breath, and he said to me in a sharp whisper, Drop the blind, I want light. Then he bent down, and with his face almost touching Lucy's, examined her carefully. He removed the flowers and lifted the silk handkerchief from her throat. As he did so, he started back, and I could hear his ejaculation, Mind God! as it was smothered in his throat. I bent over and looked too, and as I noticed, some queer chill came over me. The wounds on the throat had absolutely disappeared. For fully five minutes, Van Helsing stood looking at her, with his face at its sternest. Then he turned to me and said calmly, she is dying. It will not be long now. It will be much difference, mark me, whether she dies conscious or in her sleep. Wake that poor boy and let him come and see the last. He trusts us and we have promised him. I went to the dining room and waked him. He was dazed for a moment, but when he saw the sunlight streaming in through the edges of the shutters, he thought he was late and expressed his fear. I assured him that Lucy was still asleep but told him as gently as I could that both Van Helsing and I feared that the end was near. He covered his face with his hands and slid down on his knees by the sofa where he remained, perhaps a minute, with his head buried, praying, whilst his shoulders shook with grief. And I took him by the hand and raised him up. Come, I said, my dear old fellow, summon all your fortitude. It will be best and easiest for her. When we came into Lucy's room, I could see that Van Helsing had, with his usual forethought, been putting matters straight and making everything look as pleasing as possible. He had even brushed Lucy's hair so that it lay on the pillow in its unusual sunny ripples. When we came into the room, she opened her eyes, and seeing him whispered softly, "'Arthur, oh, my love, I am so glad you've come.' He was stooping to kiss her when Van Helsing motioned him back. "'No,' he whispered, "'not yet.' Hold her hand. It will comfort her more. So Arthur took her hand and knelt beside her, and she looked her best with all the soft lines matching the angelic beauty of her eyes. 
Then gradually her eyes closed and she sank to sleep. For a little bit her breast heaved softly, and her breath came and went like a tired child's. And then insensibly there came the strange change which I had noticed in the night. Her breathing grew stertorous, the mouth opened, and the pale gums, drawn back, made the teeth look longer and sharper than ever. In a sort of sleep-waking, vague, unconscious way, she opened her eyes, which were now dull and hard at once, and said in a soft, voluptuous voice such as I had never heard from her lips, "'Oh, Arthur, oh, my love, I am so glad you've come. Kiss me.' Arthur bent eagerly over to kiss her, but at that instant Van Helsing, who, like me— had been startled by her voice, swooped upon him, and catching him by the neck with both hands, dragged him back with a fury of strength which I never thought he could have possessed, and actually hurled him almost across the room. Not for your life, he said. Not for your living soul and hers. And he stood between them like a lion at bay. Arthur was so taken aback that he did not for a moment know what to do or say, and before any impulse of violence could seize him, he realized the place and the occasion, and stood silent, waiting. I kept my eyes fixed on Lucy, as did Van Helsing, and we saw a spasm as of rage flit like a shadow across her face. The sharp teeth champed together. Then her eyes closed, and she breathed heavily. Very shortly after, she opened her eyes in all their softness, and putting out her poor, pale, thin hand, took Van Helsing's great brown one. Drawing it to her, she kissed it. My true friend, she said in a faint voice, but with untellable pathos. My true friend and his. Oh, guard him and give me peace. I swear it, he said solemnly, kneeling beside her and holding up his hand as one who registers an oath. Then he turned to Arthur and said to him, Come, my child, take her hand in yours and kiss her on the forehead, and only once. Their eyes met instead of their lips, and so they parted. Lucy's eyes closed, and Van Helsing, who had been watching closely, took Arthur's arm and drew him away. And then Lucy's breathing became stertorous again, and all at once it ceased. It is all over, said Van Helsing. She is dead. I took Arthur by the arm, and led him away to the drawing-room, where he sat down and covered his face with his hands, sobbing in a way that nearly broke me down to see. I went back to the room, and found Van Helsing looking at poor Lucy, and his face was sterner than ever. Some change had come over her body. Death had given back part of her beauty, for her brow and cheeks had recovered some of their flowing lines. Even the lips had lost their deadly pallor. It was as if the blood— no longer needed for the working of the heart, had gone to make the harshness of death as little rude as might be. We thought her dying whilst she slept, and sleeping when she died. I stood behind. I stood beside Van. I stood beside Van Helsing and said, "Oh well, poor girl, there is peace for her at last. It is the end." He turned to me and said with grave solemnity, Not so, alas, not so. It is only the beginning. When I asked him what he meant, he only shook his head and answered, We can do nothing as yet. Wait and see.
Well, I can think of no better place to stop there. That is the end of chapter 12. And the next episode, we will start chapter 13. Thanks for listening. And I'll be back with you very shortly. From my perspective, it'll be in about 30 seconds. But from your perspective, I guess it'll be a couple of days. Because the internet makes time weird. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.